Good morning. Wherever and however you find yourself listening to me, I want to welcome you and I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The past two weeks have brought some severe weather to our area. Uh, last Sunday night, as I'm sure some of you were, we were uh, huddled up in our safe place at home, and as we were all sort of crowded underneath the stairs, uh, I kept looking at Nixon, and I noticed that he kept looking at me. It's like he would not take his eyes off of me. I could tell he was a little anxious. It's uh, not every night that you get woken up by your parents in the middle of the night to come downstairs and hide under a stairwell. Um, so I just kept smiling at him. Uh, I just kept reassuring him that everything was going to be just fine. Uh, I kept telling him that our, our man Josh Johnson uh, was looking out for us, and uh, so that, that seemed to help him calm down. Now, I'm not trying to be uh, morbid or anything, uh, but the truth of the matter is, as much as I was trying to reassure him, I had absolutely no control over the severity of the weather. Um, we were in the safest place we knew to be, but there's no way, no way uh, possible that I could guarantee 100% perfect safety. But to him and his little five-year-old mind, he just needed his dad to reassure him that everything was going to come out okay in the end. When you're a child, there are many times when you face situations that you don't entirely understand and that are out of your control. And when we grow up, that doesn't necessarily change. We still find ourselves many times in situations that we cannot entirely understand and that are outside of our control. But unlike me, our Heavenly Father is in perfect control. And he can guarantee 100% safety. Of course, he does not promise physical safety to his children, but he does guarantee the eternal security of all who are his children. And God does not simply look at us with a reassuring smile and a wishful thought. He holds us and guards us in his absolute power. And that should affect the way we go about our lives. I want us to see that truth together here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your great power. We're thankful that you wield your power on behalf of your children according to your good pleasure and your wisdom. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to show and say to us through your word. God, that our vision of your power and of your mercy and of your holiness would be enlarged. God, that our eyes would be open to behold your glory and that it would then uh, result in our mouths being opened to praise your name. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. And amen. Now we're focusing this morning on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. But I, I wanted to point out to you that verses 3 through 12, in the original Greek, those 10 verses are all one long sentence. Now English translations break that sentence up into several sentences, and I'm thankful for that because it certainly makes it more manageable and, uh, and easier to understand. But it is helpful to know that verses 3 through 12, that whole long uh, section, it all has one central thought. And the main idea of that long sentence is at the very beginning in verse 3 where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is calling on us to praise God because of who He is and what He has done. Everything in verses 3 through 12 is meant to support that point that God is worthy of our praise. When you zoom in on verses 3 through 5 as we're doing today, you see that everything in these three verses revolve around one reason why we should praise and bless God's name. Everything in verses 3 through 5 relates in some way to the phrase, He has caused us to be born again. So that's a phrase we're going to hear a lot today. He has caused us to be born again. Notice with me. He has caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. That's the reason why He has caused us to be born again, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the result of our having been born again, that we have a living hope. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the instrument by which God causes us to be born again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the goal for which He has caused us to be born again. And He has caused us to be born again... Namely, we who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a way of describing the recipients of that new birth, those who have been born again. So everything in these three verses relates in some way to what it means that God has caused us to be born again. And Peter is not telling us that truth simply so that we will know it as a matter of fact, so that we'll have more knowledge he tells us that so that that knowledge, that truth, that fact will lead us to praise and bless the name of the Lord. He's, he's wanting to call on us to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way he does that in verses 3 through 5 is by showing us the reason and the result and the instrument and the goal and the recipients of those whom God has caused to be born again. So here's how I want us to summarize the big idea in a, in a more concise package, here's the big idea of these three verses. God's children should praise Him because He has given to them new life. God's children should praise Him because He has given to them new life. Now, new life is my way of talking about what Peter says when He has caused us to be born again. Because it's not just... The, the past fact, it is the, the living current result that God's children have new life. 
And that should cause us to praise Him, to bless His name. Peter is borrowing that image, that phrase of being born again from John 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that phrase, born again, it's one of those phrases that can be so familiar to us that we would fail to stop and think about the powerful truth that it conveys. So I want us just to take a step back for a moment and think about what in the world was Jesus talking about when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what in the world is Peter talking about when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that according to God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now think about your, your physical birth. Think about how important and defining your birth was. Uh, for one thing, it may have been a long time ago uh, for some of you, uh, maybe not as long for others. But your birth is how you came to have life. You would not be alive today. You would not be listening to my voice. Your heart would not be beating. Your lungs would not be breathing. Your brain would not be thinking if at some point in the past you had not been born. And your physical birth has had all kinds of effects on you. Some of you may take medicine for some kind of ailment or disease you have that may partially be because of environment or because of choices, but it may very well be something genetic, something that you have by virtue of your birth. The way you look, whether you're very handsome or maybe not so much, uh, Whatever the case may be, the way you look, the color of your skin, it, it, it comes to you by virtue of your birth. Uh, the place in which you were born and the parents to whom you were born have shaped your identity and your character. Yet, you did absolutely nothing to accomplish your own birth. It happened to you. By reminding us that God has caused His children to be born again... Peter's reminding us that what ultimately defines us is not our first birth, but our second birth. Your first birth has had an incredibly defining impact on your life, and yet you did nothing to accomplish it. And the same is true for those who have been born again. The most important thing about you is not who your father or mother is, but whether God is your heavenly father. It's not where your earthly citizenship lies by virtue of where you were born, but it's whether you have been born into the kingdom of heaven. It's not any earthly inheritance that your parents have or have not left to you, but whether you are heir to the promises of God. So let us not gloss over that statement. He has caused us to be born again. Do not fail to hear this earth-shaking truth that God has mercifully granted new life to His children, a kind of life that cannot be taken from them, and a kind of life that is far more defining than any earthly physical life that is fleeting. The more deeply we grasp that truth, the more sincerely it will drive us to praise and bless the name of our Father in heaven, that God's children should praise Him because He has given to them new life. Now that we have that big idea in our mind, I want us to dive a little deeper in these three verses 
And I want to point out three truths about this new life that God has granted to His children. The first thing I want you to see with me is that our new life derives from God's eternal character. Our new life derives from God's eternal character. As Peter puts it, God has caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy. That is the reason why God has caused us to be born again. I want you to think back for a moment to the book of Exodus. God brought His people out of slavery. He redeemed them powerfully. Then He brought them to Mount Sinai gave them the law. But what were the people of Israel doing while Moses was up on the mountain receiving God's instructions for them? They were at the base of the mountain forging a calf from gold and bowing down to worship it as their God. So Moses goes back up the mountain and God passes before him and proclaims to him his name. This is from Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, this can get a little confusing, so hang with me for just a second. Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when Peter says that God has caused us to be born again according to His great mercy, Peter is borrowing that phrase, great mercy, from the Greek translation of Exodus 34 verse 6, where God describes Himself as abounding in steadfast love. So when God says in Exodus 34 6 that He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Peter takes that phrase, abounding in steadfast love, and he uses that to say, according to God's abounding love, He has caused us to be born again. It's the idea that God's faithful mercy toward His people is overflowing. There is no end to it. So when you read... In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, according to His great mercy. Don't just think of the word great in, in the sense of really good. Peter is saying something more than just that God's mercy is really good. It's a way of saying that God's mercy is endless. It is boundless. It never fails. In, in my experience, uh, in my own heart and life and, and in speaking to other people, I often find that um, very few people ever have a correct estimation of their own sinfulness. And it cuts both ways. Uh, there are some people who are, are tempted to think of their sin as being very small. They, they minimize it. They downplay it. It's not that big of a deal. Hear me. If that's your temptation, if your temptation is to downplay your sin and say it's not that big of a deal, you need to hear the fact that God's mercy is abounding means that your sin may be greater than you imagine. And it often is. Our sin is often far greater than we imagine. 
On the other hand, other, other people sometimes are tempted to think of their sin as being so great that God surely could not forgive someone like me or save someone like me. And if that's you, I want you to hear me. No matter how great your sin is, God's mercy is greater. That's what it means for His mercy to be abounding. It means that you cannot out God's mercy. You cannot go too far that He would say, Sorry, I can't reach you there. His mercy is abounding. It is endless. It has no end. That is why we can have new life. Not because of the holiness of our character, but because of God's holiness and because of His mercy. So the first truth that we see about this new life we have that God has granted to His children is that our new life derives from God's eternal character. The second thing I want you to see with me is that our new life is grounded on God's past accomplishment. Our new life is grounded on God's past accomplishment. So it derives from God's eternal character, but it's grounded on His past accomplishment. God's character is eternally loving, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. That's who He is. But He has demonstrated that abounding mercy in history, in His merciful acts. As Peter puts it, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the instrument by which God has exercised His mercy and caused His children to receive new life, to be born again. The reason that our hope is a living hope is because Jesus is a living King and Savior. He died, but He's not dead anymore. He is alive. Of course, the resurrection, when we talk about the resurrection... That's assuming everything that came before it. We're assuming Jesus' sinless life and His sacrificial death on the cross in our place. But Peter says that it is specifically through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that God has caused His children to be born again. Because of what God has done through Jesus in the past, you and I can have life in the present. By raising Jesus from death to life, God has raised us with Him and given us life in His name. Now this is a really important point because people sometimes think of eternal life as something that begins after a believer dies. After I die then, I will begin eternal life. But in fact, God gives eternal life to us the moment we put our trust in Jesus. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, present tense. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not whoever believes in the Son will get eternal life one day in the sweet by and by, but whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, right now, eternal life. That's why Peter can say that we're born again to a living hope. Our hope is not dead. It's not wishful. It's not empty or worthless. Our, our hope is vibrant. It is certain. Our hope is alive because our Savior and our King, Jesus, is alive. He is living. And because He is living, we can have a living hope. So the reason that we can have new life in the present is because of what God has accomplished through Jesus in the past. It's not because of who we are. 
It's not because of anything we've done. He has done it all. So the second truth we see here is that our new life is grounded on God's past accomplishment. The third truth I want you to see with me is that our new life anticipates our future resur- or excuse me, our future inheritance. It does anticipate our future resurrection, but our new life anticipates our future inheritance. That's the language that Peter uses here in 1 Peter chapter 1. New life, eternal life, is the present possession of all of God's children derived from God's eternal character and grounded on God's past accomplishment in raising Jesus from the dead. But that new life that we have presently also anticipates something that is still to come in the future. Look with me again here. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not only has God given the free gift of eternal life to all who trust in His Son, He also grants to them an inheritance. And like life itself, an inheritance is not something we can earn or achieve. An inheritance, in the words of Daniel Doriani, an inheritance is a gift based on a relationship, not a wage for a performance. So let's think about an earthly inheritance. What are some things that might cause an heir to fail to acquire his or her inheritance? Are there things that might hinder an heir from acquiring the inheritance that has been laid up for them. Sure. For one thing, something could happen to the inheritance itself, right? Um, A steward could mismanage it. Someone could steal it. If the inheritance is in the form of land, as it often was in ancient times, that land could be polluted or defiled in some way. It could be taken by force or wrecked by nature, or it could simply lose its value for, for some other reason. In contrast to that, Peter says of our inheritance that it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, kept in heaven for you. And I can't think of any uh, safety deposit box that would be safer than that. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It kind of makes you wonder if when Peter wrote this, if he was thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. God is keeping our inheritance for us in absolute security. That's one thing that could possibly happen to an inheritance. Something could happen to the inheritance itself. But what if the inheritance itself remains totally secure, but the heir is still somehow hindered from acquiring it. What if, for example, what if the heir dies before he or she can inherit it? Or what if the heir somehow disqualifies himself or herself from acquiring it? Maybe there are some stipulations involved. 
To that question, Peter reminds us as well that our inheritance is being kept for us, verse 5, for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice two things that Peter tells us. God is keeping the inheritance for us. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. That's one thing Peter's telling us. The other thing he's telling us is that God is keeping us for the inheritance. We are being guarded by God's power until we can attain that inheritance that He has set aside for us. Now there are two words in verse 5 to which I really especially want to draw your attention. The words, through faith. The way that God preserves His children is by preserving them in faith. Peter does not only say that God's children are being guarded by God's power, He says that we're being guarded by God's power through faith. The way that God keeps His children safe is by keeping us in faith, by keeping us trusting in His Son, Jesus. See, we tend to think that the real danger is out there. We we tend to think that the real danger is what could happen to us from the outside. We might lose our job. We might lose our health. We might lose our possessions. We might lose our reputation. We might even lose our life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any way diminishing or downplaying the reality of those things, especially in a time like this. I simply want to say that losing my job, losing my health, losing my possessions, losing my reputation, even losing my life would pale in comparison to losing my faith. Because faith is how I am united to Christ. And as long as I am in Him, I'm secure no matter what happens to me. No matter what I gain or lose, I am secure in Him. No matter what trials come my way, even death itself cannot separate me from His love. Peter is reminding us here that God's power guards those who are in Christ by keeping them believing in Jesus. So someone who is truly born again can never lose their salvation. They can never fall away. The reason they can never fall away is because God will keep them trusting in Him. Now all morning we've been thinking about the new life that God gives to His children. A really important question we need to ask ourselves today is is this. How do I know if I have that new life? How do I know, in the words of 1 Peter, how do I know if God has caused me to be born again? A lot of people answer that question by talking about some time in the past when they made some kind of decision to follow Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. If you're a child of God, there certainly was a decisive moment when you were born again. But if I were to come to you and say, how do you know that you were born? You could answer that question a couple ways. You could say, well, let, let me go to my safe and I'll, I'll pull out my birth certificate and show it to you. Here, here's the certificate of when I was born. That's one way. Or you could say, well, Matt, 
uh, the reason I know I'm born is because I'm alive. Because I'm, I'm living and breathing and my heart's beating and I'm talking to you and I'm answering your question right now. That's how I know that I was born in the past is because I have life today. And the same is true spiritually speaking. I don't need a birth certificate to know that I was born. I know that I was born because I have life today and the way to know that you've been born again is to ask yourself whether there is evidence of new life, whether there is evidence of eternal life in you. Do you have a living hope? Is God guarding you through faith? Is there fruit in your life that would indicate repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus? Listen, I'm not here to, to try to make any genuine follower of Christ doubt their salvation. That's not my, my hope or my, my goal in any way. But false assurance is just as dangerous as no assurance. And what I'm, what I'm simply trying to do is I don't want you to be putting your trust in some prayer you prayed or some card you signed or some aisle you walked or some decision you made. I want you to be putting your trust in Jesus. It's not about how sincere you were. It's not about where you were. It's right now today, are you trusting in Christ? Is there evidence in your life that you have a living hope? Is, God's, is God guarding you by His power through faith? Is there faith in your life today? The way to, to know this, the way to diagnose yourself is, to ask, is not to ask, am I perfect? That's not the question, am I perfect? The question is, am I clinging to Jesus? God has promised that He will never loosen His grip on one who is truly His. And God has promised that He will strengthen our grip on Him. That's what Peter means when he says that we are being guarded by God's power through faith. He means that God has promised that He will never let go of me, and God has promised that He's going to keep me holding on to Him. So ask yourself, not am I perfect, but ask yourself, am I clinging to Jesus? Am I trusting in Him? Is there evidence of that in my life? If you're unsure of where you stand with God or if you think that God is leading you to make a decision for Christ, I want to encourage you. I hope you will reach out to me um, so that we can talk about it. Even though we can't have a, a, a time of public invitation this morning, God's Word still demands a response. You cannot hear God's Word and then walk away neutral. Either you choose to draw near to Him or you choose to harden your heart and to go further away. So God's Word demands a response one way or another, and I hope, I pray that by the Spirit you will draw near to Him. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word by which You comfort Your children and by which You convict those who are not yet Your children. And Lord, I know that every person who is hearing my voice right now is, is either a, a child of yours or they are someone who could be. And, and it's not that they need to, to, to accomplish anything. You have done it all. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would move in their heart to draw them to your Son, Jesus. God, that you would bring them to their knees where they would trust in Him, turn from their sin and follow Him. 
And Lord, for those who are listening who are genuinely believers, who you have caused to be born again, Lord, some of them who have been walking with you for years and years and years, I pray that they would be reminded today of the absolute security that they have in your love. God, that you guard us by your power, that you keep us believing in Jesus, and that you are guarding our inheritance for us, that it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it's being kept in heaven for us. And God, I pray that the result of that would be that we would praise your name today. God, open our mouths to speak of your goodness, to speak of your abounding mercy even today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want to leave you with a word of blessing today. This is uh, uh, an adaptation of uh, Psalm 67. May the Lord be gracious to you and bless you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace so that His way may be known on the earth and His saving power among all nations. Amen.